Thank you, David. You may be seated. If you got your Bible and you want to turn to one simple verse, Romans 5, 8, David already mentioned it. I do want to set out to do something tonight and do it in a way maybe that uh, is a little unusual. But the great thing is I leave town Thursday morning and so it's safe. <laughs> but I want to set out to prove that God absolutely loves you. And guys, this morning I started with the Lord's Prayer and the first word is adoration. Tomorrow night we'll do verse 10, alignment, and verse 11, then verse 12. I won't get through all of it, but it's what I've been praying in my own life when Jesus just pressed me and said, come up higher. It's also what I've been praying for my family. This is what I pray for my community. The truth is, I've seen God do more in the last stretch. It's one of the most unusual things. But for some of y'all that are a little older, like I am, our family, our kids, this next generation needs prayer more than they've ever needed it. And we got to be the ones that do it. It's one of the things we've mobilized hundreds, thousands of people in our community to pray for this next generation because the enemy's after them. And so what I'm doing is just kind of sharing just kind of what's been happening with me. And uh, so by Wednesday night, you'll at least have a start in how to pray through the Lord's Prayer, but specifically for family and, uh, and just your community and your church, your pastor. And I like simple. But tonight I want to do something that I, I touched on it this morning where Jesus said, Our Father, which art in heaven, our Father touched on the fact that so many people have grown up in tough situations and no father or no mother was perfect and that hinders their relationship with God. There's a second thing that I think hinders a relationship with God and that is guilt. And so many of people are like me that I got saved right as I was about to turn 13 and nobody discipled me. I mean nobody discipled me. I stood at the altar at Siloam Baptist Church in Marion, Alabama, and all these women came and hugged my neck, and they cried. I got lipstick on my collar, and that was a leisure suit for some of y'all. <laughs> you don't even know what that is. Some of y'all have no idea, okay? Worst style there's ever been. All you senior adults, don't talk about these young people's styles, because we wore stuff that I won't go there. It's bad. But I remember they walked away and I was standing there and think, okay, what next? And nobody took me aside and taught me how to walk with God. And I ended up, as soon as we turned 16, we moved. And uh, when the human heart hurts, it's going to find some way to manage its pain. And so I went off for five years as an absolute idiot. I was the classic thing in the Bible of a prodigal son. And... Uh, I was the Franklin boy. There was three of us. And I remember my dad walked in the bathroom one night after I got in way too late. And I remember he just did this. He looked at me and shook his head and walked out and never said a word. So how do you go from an idiot and a prodigal all of a sudden doing something different? You, you can't do that unless you've experienced forgiveness and know God loves you. Know the Father loves you. Because the enemy's always going to say to you, oh, that's not real. You can't do that. God couldn't use you. 
and guilt will absolutely paralyze you. But what set me free from guilt was knowing the Father, my Heavenly Father loves me. And so if you're going to start off every day, our Father, my Daddy, which are, you got to be guilt-free, okay? And so tonight, I want to do something really, really strange. I don't want to preach. I want to story something. I want to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to Jesus' death on the cross. Because he says, and God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so you can't take notes on this. But, but when I embrace this, I've been free from guilt ever since. Now, that doesn't mean the enemy doesn't try to whisper in my ear. But I'm telling you, I go look at the cross. And, because it's, have you ever wondered why there's a cross in all the churches? It's because it's the ultimate love letter from God. And he put it on a hill and he said, I love you, don't you ever forget it. And there's a cross. So walk with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went there often. But on that Thursday night before the cross, it was a different night. He went and he asked three disciples to go with him. And he asked them for the first time, he asked them, would you pray with me? He had never asked them that before. Would you pray with me? He went a little way further and he began to pray Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. Now, guys, why would he, why would he pray that? What, what was that cup? Now, this morning, we talked about the fact that God is what? One word, holy. So his love is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. His peace is perfect. His mercy is perfect. His forgiveness is perfect. But his wrath is also perfect. Now you think about the sum total of all the sin that's ever happened for all of humanity. All of it. The wrath of God has been released against it and it's stored in a cup. And Jesus had to drink that cup. All of my sin, all of Hitler's sin, every person, that sin was stored in a cup and Jesus knew it was God's will. The Father, that he would drink that cup. And so he prayed, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. He went and found his disciples. They'd fallen asleep. He said, guys, would you please pray with me? He went back and he said it again. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it, but not my will, but thine. Guys, there's a strange medical phenomenon in blushing when all of a sudden extra blood flows to the capillaries right underneath the your sweat glands, and that's what causes people to blush. But in extreme trauma, those capillaries, and this is a medically documented thing, those capillaries will burst and blood will flow out of and ooze through the sweat glands. It's called hematidrosis. And the Bible records that Jesus sweat drops of blood. If you know you're about to take the perfect wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God, don't think he didn't do that without saying and pleading, God, let this pass from me. That's trauma. 
One interesting thing about hematidrosis is it makes the skin incredibly sensitive. They say it's so sensitive that you can just blow on it and it will cause excruciating pain. And Jesus had spent that time with the Father and he got up and he said to his disciples, come on guys. This crowd came and Judas came over to him and kissed him. That would have been incredibly painful, that kiss. But you know what's worse than the physical pain of a kiss on the cheek from a traitor? It's the pain of the heart from a traitor. And I'm so thankful my Jesus never betrayed me. They bound him. They took him and there was three religious trials. The first one in the middle of the night was before Annas and Annas was the, he was kind of like the mafia boss of the priesthood. He was a, I mean, he was this, this old cadre. I don't know any other way to say it. He asked Jesus, who are your disciples and where are they? Now listen, we may have betrayed Jesus, but I'm so thankful he didn't betray us. He didn't, he didn't tell him. He just sat there in silence, stood there. He asked, what do you teach? This one he said, hey, ask them. They've heard me teach in the temple. And as soon as he said that, one of the officers hit Jesus. And that was the first of many, many blows to come. The first contusion that ended up on his face. The pain of that, I can't imagine. Went from Caiaphas, I mean from Annas to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was actually the reigning high priest. He was actually the son-in-law of Annas. They had a problem there because the whole Jewish court system was set up that the, the reason the, 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 the priests were so excited about Judas, when Judas accepted the betrayal of Jesus, he was really accepting to be the prosecuting attorney, what we would call the prosecuting He would be the chief witness and the prosecuting attorney. But when they arrested Jesus and Jesus responded differently than Judas had thought, they were left without a witness. They were left without somebody to prosecute it. And so they started making up these things about Jesus and they said he's going to, he said he'd rebuild the temple in three days, it'd be he'd destroy it, then he'd rebuild it, and he really didn't say that. So there was all this confusion, and it went around and around, and you can read it. If you'll read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each account, you'll see this confusion. And Caiaphas finally, he said, I adjure you by the Son of the living God. I mean, by the living God. Now, that was what was called the oath of the testimony. It's like us swearing on a Bible. Do you promise to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And when he said, I adjure you by the living God, he was saying, okay, Jesus, because Jesus had been sitting there basically not saying very much. They said, you've got to tell the truth on this one. Are you, the, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus quoted Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13, two messianic prophecies and he says it is as you say and you'll see the son of man coming in glory and when they did that Caiaphas did something that was illegal the high priest was never supposed to tear his robe but he tore his robe 
And they began to basically start shouting, and that's when it was like, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to kill him because that's heresy. It's hard for us to imagine this kind of stuff, but if you'll watch stuff going on in the Middle East or in India when the Muslims riot and do things like that, they'll kill people. You, you get a sense that this was a different kind of thing than maybe we're used to in our American way. So they took Jesus from that second trial with Caiaphas and a, and a small group to they met with the Sanhedrin. That wasn't the full Sanhedrin. We know Nicodemus and some others weren't there. But they got straight to the point. And they said, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And once again, Jesus quoted Psalm 110. And they began to mock him and beat him and things like that. But they took him to, uh, to Pilate. And so there was three religious trials, and then there was three civil trials. Now, why did they have to do the civil trial? Because the Jews did not have permission to kill somebody. Only Rome could give that permission. So they went to Pilate. The Fortress Antonio, which was this huge place, and it was the military place, and they, they, they went to the they didn't go in. They were outside in the courtyard. And they said to Pilate, this man's deserving of death. And Pilate surprised them. One of the ways that Pilate and the Jews kept peace, they kind of gave each other some of the things, and this was part of the corruption of the day. But Pilate surprised them, and he said, well, what, what is he deserving of death for? They weren't ready for that, and so they started making things up on the fly. They started saying some things and that... Uh, that really, I mean, it was actually kind of, kind of funny that they started saying these things. They said, oh, he, he leads the nation into astray, and, they're, and Pilate's like, well, whoop-de-doo. Then they said, oh, he, he says to the people, don't pay taxes to Caesar. And Pilate knew that wasn't true. But there was a moment that they, he said something about Jesus, they said something about Jesus claimed to be a king. Now that caught Pilate's attention because Pilate was a guy that everything had to go smooth and you did not, you didn't want any kind of rebellion. And so he pulled Jesus aside because he knew the priests wouldn't follow him because the Passover was there and they would be unclean. So he asked Jesus, he said, are you a king? He asked Jesus several things. Sometimes Jesus would answer, but Jesus did answer the one about, are you a king? And he says, it is as you say. But my kingdom's not of this world, lest my, my followers, they would fight. But I was born for this, to be a king. Pilate says, oh, so you are a king. And, but, but Pilate was like, okay, this guy is not the kind of king that's a threat to me. So he took him back out to the Jews. And he said, I don't find any fault with him. The Jews weren't going to let it go. And they're starting to demand that Jesus be killed. And they, they kept going and Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And at some point, they said something about he was from Galilee. And Pilate was like, oh, here's my way out. Pilate's jurisdiction was not Galilee, but that was Herod. And so 
Herod was in town and Pilate and Herod didn't like each other. But Pilate thought, okay, I got a way to maybe defer to Herod and maybe he can handle this for me. So they sent him to, uh, to Herod. Now guys, what, anybody remember something about Herod that would make you think, okay, Herod's not a good guy? What was it? He had John the Baptist killed. So Jesus is going to stand before Herod. He's the Tetrarch of Galilee, who's the one that murdered his first cousin. Herod is notorious for being a slimy guy. He wanted to see John the Baptist work miracles. He wanted to see Jesus work some miracles. It's interesting that Jesus, Herod's the only guy that Jesus never spoke to when he spoke to Jesus. He wouldn't say anything. Herod finally said, okay, this isn't worth anything to me. He couldn't get Jesus to do a miracle or anything like that. He had his soldiers put a white robe on him, mock him, do all kind of things like that, send him back. He comes back to Pilate. Now things get really, really serious because while Jesus was gone, Pilate's wife had had a dream and said, don't have anything to do with this man. So Jesus comes back. Pilate already knows he's innocent. And he set his mind to have Jesus set free. But he's got these priests. And so he thinks, okay, to the priests, maybe I can cut you all a deal. I usually release somebody this time of year. How about I release somebody? How about I release Jesus? And he gave them Barabbas or Jesus. And Barabbas was a notorious guy. And they said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. What do I do with Jesus? They're like, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate was like, okay, I don't want to go there. So Pilate did what John 19, it says, and they scourged him. So what Pilate was doing, saying, okay, try to satisfy them, I'll have him scourged. Now, guys, most of us don't understand scourging. If you watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you saw a little bit of it. There'd be a post, they'd take the prisoner, they'd have his hands bound, they would tie him to this post, strip him down, and the Romans had what they call lictrins. Anywhere from two to six lictrins would be in charge of scourging a man. It was called the Roman half-death because their goal was to beat a man half to death Half the people, they said, died from scourging. But it was never the fault of the lictor. So what they would use is they would use a thing called a flagrum, which was a little stick with leather straps on it. And one lictrin would have leather straps, a little flagrum that would have pieces of lead in the end of that leather strip. The other one would have pieces of bone, sheep bone, tied to those leather things and the first one would lay a stripe the first one would lay a lick and the second one come right behind it with that bone led first to bruise the next one would lay the sheep bone and they would twist it and it would begin to cut the, the skin to where it was just ribbons but they didn't just stop with the skins they went into the muscle all the way to the bones matter of fact we've got I mean they said you could see ribs Sometimes, if it went all the way around, 
they'd lacerate the stomach and entrails would fall out. Because people kept good records, we know that within two to two and a half minutes, everybody would pass out. These lecterns would go over, they were medically trained, if they still had a strong pulse, they'd keep beating the guy until they got his pulse so weak that they couldn't feel it. We never have a record of Jesus passing out. We have no idea how long it would last, but we know this. By the time they got through, you'd have been able to see Jesus' ribs, his back muscles would have been lacerated, his skin would have just been just little slivers and ribbons like all over his back. When they finally finished it, we don't know why they stopped. They took a purple robe and put on him. As soon as they put that robe on him, clotting would have happened. And they took a crown of thorns that they'd made and put on his head and used a rod and they beat him and stuff like that. And you've you got to remember now, by this time, Jesus, no water, hematidrosis, the trauma of sweating drops of blood would have made him physically weaker. Now he's incredibly weak. Many doctors said he probably was in critical condition. So they bring this, I mean, his face would have been absolutely black and blue by now. They bring him back, and, and you know, there's this moment that they bring him to Pilate, and Pilate takes him out to the Jews, and he says, behold the man, here he is. What Pilate was hoping was that they would say, okay, that satisfies us. Anybody remember their response? Crucify him. What they had done to Jesus wasn't enough for the Jews. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate calls Jesus back in. He says, don't you hear what they're saying? He said, don't you know I've got the power to, of life and death over you? And Jesus, how in the world his mind was this clear? He says, no, nah, listen, you, you don't have any power except for what's been given to you. And Pilate got even more scared. And he had said in his mind that he was going to get Jesus released and went out back to the Jews and they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What was the turning point that caused Pilate to crucify Jesus? Guys, the Jews used blackmail. If you go look at the scripture, and you got to do a little study to kind of catch this, they, they said, when Pilate was saying, I don't find any fault in him, he's innocent. He said, oh, you're no friend of Caesar's. Now, guys, that was a phrase, okay? There was two different ways that there was people ruling for the Roman government. One, you were appointed by the Senate, and the other one, you were appointed by Caesar. Well, Pilate had been appointed by Caesar because he had a friend who was the number two guy by the name of Sejunus. Sejunus had led a revolt, and now he'd been killed. So Tiberius Caesar... Pilate was on shaky ground and he'd had two bad marks because the Jews had revolted against some stuff. One time Pilate brought some graven images into town, the Jews thought, and I mean there was this big revolt and he started to kill a bunch of people but they just laid on the ground with their necks bare and said, kill us. And he had to give in to them and he removed the graven images. There was another time he, and, he went and stole money out of the Jewish treasury to do an aqueduct. And the people started to revolt, and he had a bunch of his soldiers dressed as Jews. And at the right, when they gave the signal, they took their robes off, and they started 
killing people and there was such a mass panic and people started running a number of people were trampled to death and so Pilate had two black marks and so when the Jews used that term you're no friend of Caesar's that's when Pilate went he sat down at the beam on the mercy seat what we call and he got a bowl of water and he washed his hands because I can tell you you can wash as many times as you want to in a river in the ocean in your shower but you can't wash away sin only one thing removes sin and that's the blood of Jesus Pilate washed his hands and he gave the command put the cross on the slave he didn't say put the slave on the cross he said put the cross on the slave the beam weighed anywhere, the patibula weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. They would tie that to the man and parade him. They'd put actually a rope around his waist to lead him up to where the crucifixion was. Jesus was so weak, and you can imagine he, his arms were tied, and he was so weak from what he had been through, so when he fell, he couldn't catch himself. He didn't even have the power to get up. That's why they got Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. They got up to the place. They laid him in the dirt. Guys, the, the Romans were incredibly good, okay? You know why we know so much about crucifixion? Because the Germans experimented in the 30s on the Jews and recorded it all. So the ancient world, the hand, we, we call it a wrist, but the hand was the wrist and the hand, but there's the, a nerve right here of all your fingers. All these nerves of these fingers come to one spot right here. And they would put the spike right into that nerve. So that pain would be shooting up and down the arm and up and down the arm. And the guy wouldn't fall off the cross. The Egyptians were way nicer. They would tie a guy to the cross. But the Romans would put a spike there. So they put one here and one there. He lifted Jesus up. Now, now, why in the world did they put a spike on the feet? Two reasons. One is they didn't like for somebody to be flailing around. The second thing is let's create more pain. And the Romans were so good that they knew the angle of the legs so that they could predict within four hours when that person was going to die. Now, you know how when somebody tickles your feet, some, sometimes it's ticklish? <laughs> right? Your feet have nerves in them, and they know exactly where they were. And what they did is they slapped one foot over the other one up against the, the, the main beam and put a spike there. And there's Jesus hanging there. Oh, I forgot to tell you, they had to rip that robe off of him to put him on that cross. So all that skin that was hanging there got ripped off. So you got flies, you got all kind of things. There's Jesus on the cross. You didn't die from the pain of the spikes. You died from asphyxiation. So they'd start off at 90 degrees like this. But there's no way you can hold yourself up. And, and when you start to sink, your diaphragm wears out. And you, you can inhale, but you can't exhale. So carbon dioxide starts taking. And any of y'all have been in athletics, 
The reason you get cramps and stuff like that is because of carbon dioxide and lack of oxygen. So Jesus' body, it's called tetany, would have been cramping and things like that for cruelty's sake. The other th reason that you had a nail in your foot was there was one solution to be able to get some air. You had to push up on that spike. So every time Jesus wanted to say something, he had to push up on that spike. The craziest thing to me, and I just, this blows my mind. He pushed up on that spike. The very first thing he said, now me, I'd have prayed like, God, zap him. Well, I'd have prayed like this, God, make this shorter. His very first words, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. Only Jesus could have been so perfect. There was two thieves on either side and one of them mocked him and made fun of him. If you're really the Christ, why don't you come down there and save us? Could he have? The answer is absolutely yes. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. The other one looked at him and said, Father, and he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus pushed up again. I think about the pain that it took for Jesus to be able to say to this guy, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third time, and this is from 9 to 12 in the morning, the third time he pushed up, he said to John, behold your mother. In the midst of all the pain for him to be thinking about his own mother, you're just like, wow, that's incredible. But then the Bible's very clear that at that time, darkness came over the earth. You ever wondered why darkness came over the earth? I mean, this is the worst moment in human history. Worst moment of human history. Here's what was happening in that moment. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And for the first time ever that there had been this relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before time began, there was this perfect love relationship and now a holy God cannot be associated with sin. And as he began to pour the wrath of God out on Jesus, Jesus became sin. Every murder, every rapist, every child molester, the sin of every single thing, every one of us got put on Jesus. We know from some of the medical things that in severe trauma, most everybody passes out. And if they don't, their stomach will probably rupture. Jesus never passed out for three hours. T.W. Hunt speculates that the reason that God caused darkness because he didn't want anybody to have to look at Jesus 
who knows how contorted he would have been. Jesus pushed up. And he'd always referred to God as Father. But this time he said, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Guys, for me, this is the worst moment in all of human history. And I have no idea except for I've got one little reference point, maybe. Our son was a surprise way back in 1986. He was born, and uh, my wife and I were both in seminary. He kept crying a bunch and crying a bunch, and everybody at the church in rural Kentucky gave us everything for colic. Nothing worked. Kept taking him back to the doctor, and three months we took him back to the doctor, and uh, she started asking some questions because she thought she heard something. And turned out that uh, she said, okay, there's something wrong. They sent us to the cardiologist because she heard something. Our first three children that ended up were born with heart defects. Our son, his, they did a heart cath. And uh, I'll never forget the doctor said, Mr. and Ms. Franklin, your son's a time bomb. He's going to die in the next 24 hours. He can't live like this. And they explained it. I understood what they were talking about. He says, wait. And they went and got the, found the doctors. That was before cell phones. They had to go physically find all the surgery team. We gave him over. He either lived or died on the table. And the Lord was very gracious and he's alive. But I remember in intensive care, they kept him sedated. They finally let him start to wake up. There's this little three-month-old baby. When he woke up enough to see me and his mother, you could see in his eyes, all he wanted was for us to pick him up, and we couldn't. That hurt me so bad, I couldn't even stay in the room. I had to leave. And here's God in heaven with his own son crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who among us, if our children call us, don't run? I mean, just as fast as we can. What kept God in heaven? What kept a daddy from not running to his son? For God so loved you and you and you that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Every time I think about that, but we're not finished yet. Jesus had an announcement, a pronouncement to make, but his mouth was so dry, his body was so, I mean, he knew he didn't have long. He pushed up on that spike one more time and he says I thirst he had something to say and so the soldiers took a sponge and dipped it in some vinegar and put it to his mouth he pushed up again and every time he did that his back which was just mangled was rubbing up against that piece of wood he 
He said, it is finished. What is it? Think about this, y'all. The payment of sin has been paid once and for all. Jesus paid it all. Now get this, guys. Did Jesus ever have a leper come back and say, hey, the spots came back, Jesus? Did ever a lame man come back limping again? Or a blind person say, my blindness is back? When Jesus does something, he does it 100% and does it right. And when he said, it is finished, that meant the payment of sin has been paid for in full. In full. Let me just chase a rabbit. When you've done what I did for five years, the enemy will whisper in your ear, it wasn't good enough. And I'm telling you those words, it is finished. My sin has been forgiven completely, perfectly by a holy God. Never to be dug up again. Jesus Bible says he didn't flinch or anything like that. He simply bowed his head as he said, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Because he told us nobody could take his life, but he would give it. The Romans didn't take his life. The Jews didn't take his life. He gave it. They were the instruments, but, but he gave it. He didn't fight it. Now, guys, all of us are going to struggle with faith sometime, but sometimes I look at Jesus and I think, man, you think about the very bread of life who gave his last breath trusting that God was going to raise him up. You ever struggle with faith? Man, I just go look at Jesus. I want to be like that. Before I wrap this up, let, let me... Does anybody want to take a guess to why the resurrection is so important? Guys, what's the proof that God accepted the payment of Jesus for our sins? It was the resurrection. If Jesus had been a sinful man, the payment wouldn't have been good. But when God raised him from the dead, God made this announcement that says, not only is it finished, but I accepted that. And guys, I love you with an everlasting love. That's why we've got a cross. And if you ever get serious about the cross and what God did on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, he demonstrated his love for you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, you may have grown up with a, in a horrible situation. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. You may have done a bunch of horrible things. One day I was fussing and whining and saying, there's no way that God could really forgive me. And God put this, said, David, do you want to trample underfoot the Son of God? Do you want to spit on Jesus? Who are you to think that you're so special that what Jesus did didn't forgive your sins? And if you ever, ever, question whether or not God has forgiven a man that truly repents that's to in some respects to spit on the cross if you want to know why there's a cross in this church 
is because that's the ultimate love letter to every one of you. That God has stuck it on a hill for all of eternity to say, I love you. No matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've done, I love you with an everlasting love. Guys, if you want to know how I pray for my grandkids, may they understand the cross. But I want you to get personal now. I want you just to bow your heads. And I want to ask you, do you really, really believe and know in your heart that God loves you? So that when you sit down and come to him and you pray, it's personal and it's relational. That he really is your daddy. And that he loves you perfectly. And if you really embrace forgiveness, if you really, really said, okay, God, I trust that you've forgiven me, so I'm going to live free now. I'm not going to live with shame and guilt. That's for me. Here's what the truth is. God has said it to you. The real question tonight is, what's your response? Maybe my sense is to do something maybe just a little bit. If you can just play a little music on the guitar. Guys, we're going to go into a time of just response, okay? You may want to come to the altar. But wherever, however God leads you, I want to get you to be real serious about this. Do you really believe that God loves you? And then what's your response to him? Maybe tonight some of you need to come here and look up at the cross and say, I believe that you love me, God. And I love you. You respond as God wants you to.